Steve, it's a real luxury to have you on Biota Live. It's been almost two years exactly since you last appeared on a Biota podcast. In terms of the past two years, I mean, Bruce mentioned your blog. Recently, uh, I saw a brief image of a, a game which I don't believe you're still developing, but the idea was a, a genotype, phenotype swimming game. Can you talk a little bit about that development? Uh, yeah, sure. It's... it's um I feel a bit embarrassed about it all because I did write, I got it to Alpha and then decided I didn't like it anymore and, and gave up writing it. I've had a bit of a turbulent few years personally and um, so that kind of got in the way of development. But um, the game was called Symbiosis and, and, um, and the idea actually goes back to 1979 uh, when I first started writing it. Computers were a bit slower in those days. But the idea was to produce a, a, a minimal um, Lego set of cells, cell types, and allow people to just plug them together to make circuits of cells that can do something interesting, in other words, organisms. So, because um, by the time I actually got around to writing this properly, we were into 3D, and so I could do this in a much more interesting way uh, in proper 3D. So, so I came up with a, a scheme for producing libraries of cell type sensors, uh, computational cells, um, and um, actuators. And you could just plug these things together to make simple creatures, rather like Breitenberg vehicles, but arbitrarily complex. And, um, and the idea was just to build ecosystems of these things that could eat each other and um, you know, parasitize each other and so on. And it was good fun. I enjoyed it, writing it, but... Um, it turned out to be a little bit complex, and I thought the learning curve was maybe a bit too steep for a commercial game. So I'm not sure if you followed the narrative in Bias Live, but certainly Jeffrey Ventrella, um, in terms of swimmers, has a, a long background in terms of writing swimmer games and, and uh, these kind of underlying ideas. And recently I've been working with Jeffrey, moving some of his fundamental simulations into open source. We're yet to get gene pool open source. Um, but certainly there's a, a project within the next uh, six or so months to actually do that. In terms of this game itself, is it's, uh, do you think it's something that you'll return to, or is this something that you would consider moving open source? Uh, well, I don't have the time to manage an open source project, but um, and I could give away my source code, I guess, but uh, it would be a bit opaque. It's, um, it's a thing I'd like to return to at some stage, it's somewhat different from Jeffrey's work. For a start, evolution wasn't really relevant to it. So those, those the creatures were genetically coded. They're quite complex. And, um, what I was interested in getting really was the equivalent of electronics for cell biology. You know, in electronics, you've got a reasonably small number of basic components that you can plug together into arbitrarily complex circuits to make things that do really clever stuff. And um, and that's what I was playing with 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 symbiosis cells. Um, and and I, I really enjoyed the process of thinking that through, trying to find a mechanism for getting any cell to plug into any other cell and still do something useful uh, without any kind of interface problems and so on. So it's something I'd like to come back to, but it, it turned into quite a complex piece of code. And I don't know that it's much use trying to put it out there for other people to play with. Are you familiar with framsticks at all? Because that seems to be seems to have at least vins into what you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's related to framsticks, but again, it's more complex. From what I remember of framsticks, and I haven't seen that for many years now, there's a relatively small number of 
building block types. Uh, but here I, I was talking about you know maybe a hundred different kinds of building blocks um, with with more emphasis on the computational complexity of cells, on the things they can do to modulate um, cell-cell signals, okay. um, rather than just on the input-output side, on, on the um, the actuators and sensors side. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, whether they were. I mean, obviously, you say you know you say a hundred or what have you, but I mean, obviously, they're categorised into groups, surely, of, of different kinds of things. The categorization was kind of evolving. Uh, that, that was what was interesting for me, personally, trying to design this thing. First of all, I had to come up with some kind of scheme for how cells can talk to each other so that A can connect to B even though A doesn't know what B is for and the result does something useful. Uh, and that went through an evolution of about four different mechanisms um, for how to connect cells together. And obviously there was a basic differentiation between sensors, actuators, and the stuff that goes in between the two, computational cells of various kinds. But, but gradually as I was working through this, I'd keep on designing new cell types and thinking, oh, that would be useful. And then I'd, I'd discover that, that it was very similar to two other cell types I had already made. And if I threw them all away and started again, I could come up with one cell type that, that contains... Uh, a more generalized mechanism. Um, like a lot of the stuff, I started using computing on surfaces, uh, two-dimensional two graphs, essentially you know, mathematical surfaces that could be used by, by modulating the surface. You could produce integrators and differentiators and uh, comparators and uh, all sorts of basic computational elements out of the same thing. So I went through this process of, of starting out trying to build cells that I thought I needed and then seeing similarities between them that, that allowed me to develop sort of meta-cells rather like we were talking about just now with the chemical simulator uh, and finding more basic building blocks. So this is almost fun. the idea of kinetics evolving into kind of a nervous system internally as well. Is that is that what I'm hearing? A nervous system inside the cells, you mean? Well, no. I mean, if, if you start with cell primitives, that they have uh, movement and... and you know these kind of elements. The communication of this movement through their through their um, through their membranes can actually form a kind of gestalt intelligence over these kind of walkers or swimmers or what have you. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question, Tom. Sorry. So uh, what you were describing was actually um, kind of starting out with a number of building blocks and then moving them together, but then actually looking at um, kind of structural elements. And as these structural elements put themselves together, my understanding was that. What came through this was communications and almost a kind of group intelligence of the cells as they were together. Am I right in that interpretation? Oh yes, I think so. I think that that, that was the whole point with the gestalt, the way that um, um, the, the whole was more than the sum of its parts, which is of course what we're all about. Um, the, the basic model I had in my mind for it all was analog computation. Um, so it's very undigital, the whole thing. So, so my basic elements started out as things like integrators, differentiators, comparators, because those are the, the, the basic building blocks for an analog computer. And um, but I was always trying to keep them quite biological as well. So I didn't have the level of granularity wasn't at the level of neurons. Um, it was somewhat higher than that. 
and and um, it's a bit hard to explain. You you really have to kind of look at it to see what I was getting to. So um, in terms of in terms of the source code, kind of sitting waiting for your your interest to to spark in the future, could you see a model where you moved it open source for? other developers to maintain and you then return I, I think in particular the creatures wiki I mean this is you know this is fundamentally kind of you know your original ideas being taken and moving in open source directions and then you coming back sporadically to kind of you know talk to the the gathered masses so to speak I mean do you feel that this simulation could have a similar uh, you know a similar existence in an open source community well it's possible if people can understand my code <laughs> there's an awful lot of it um, it's reasonably well commented, but I wouldn't want. I, see, I, I have no income. I can't. I can't afford to devote much time to documenting source code for a project I'm not working on. Certainly, um, but I think there's an existing community, and certainly I'm feeling this with regards to Jeffrey Ventrella's work. Uh, I mean, Jeffrey comments very slightly, but doesn't really comment a lot. And a lot of the structures as you read his code comes through other things, and you know, staring at and reflecting for. A few days. So, I mean, his source code is probably slightly more extreme, maybe, than what you're describing with yours. And yet, there is a community that's obviously very excited by Jeffrey's work, as there's obviously probably an even larger community that's very excited by your work and would certainly easily be able to take this project on without, you know, disturbing you as you uh, you develop your next project. I mean, this is something that you know you could see yourself doing. Well, it's possible, Tom. Yeah, I haven't really thought about it much, um, but it's, it's a shame to waste, certainly. And I do comment heavily. I write more comments than I do code, so um, it's explicable in in that sense. Uh, but it's also rather more complex than most AI simulators. So there's uh, so quite a lot of it. Um, one of the reasons I stopped doing it was that it was uh, it's written in C sharp and. Um, on Managed DirectX, and Managed DirectX is obsolete now. Um, so, from a commercial perspective, it, it wasn't a good idea. I'd have had to convert it to XNA, and uh, I just couldn't be fast, to be honest. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, I'll send you the source code, and you see what you can make of it. Very good. You've heard it on Biota Live first, people. The Steve <laughs> Grand fan base will be emailing me, no doubt, as soon as this goes live. So, Steve, are you in a position where you can talk about your current project at all? No, I wish I could, but I, I don't have a current project. What, what, um, I gave up the symbiosis one just because, from a commercial perspective, it didn't seem the right thing to be doing because uh, my life has changed somewhat lately. And um, So what I was going to do was write another creature, essentially, because it's, what, 17 years since I started writing creatures? Now and uh, computers are a hundred times faster, and they've got you know 3D and all this other stuff that didn't exist before. And I learned an awful lot of biology and so on. So, uh, so what I wanted to do was create a um, another simulation similar in concept to creatures, just a bunch of living things that people go off and explore and understand and interact with. Uh, I was going to base it on a, on a, um, a hypothetical moon surrounding the planet somewhere and, and so this moon has been discovered and it had life forms on it of many species and the user's job was to just go and explore the moon and find out what they could about these creatures, how they worked, take them apart, try to teach them things, try to you know, contact the more intelligent ones and so on. Which is a project I'd still like to do but when I realised 
how much work was involved, I realised that my money was going to run out before I managed to complete the code. And uh, so I've shelved it for a bit, and I'm going to write a book instead. Very good. But I just yes, don't I know think, what yet. Well, the need for books is, uh, you know, a current topic. In fact, it was something I was going to raise in the news and notes because I've been contacted with regards to two separate books currently and I'm writing chapters furiously accordingly. I think this is really the time as the economy, you know, dives down that we can kind of, rather than bunker down, I had some correspondence with Bruce, I think yesterday, associated with what the artificial life community was going to do now such a large number of our, um, you know, our colleagues were either unemployed or underemployed, and I said that I thought, you know, the artificial life community had learnt from um, certainly what happened in the, uh, you know, mid to late 90s, and we'd probably all uh, find different ways to maintain productive goals, and certainly I'm going to be maintaining bio to live um, <laughs> for as long as I'll give me a phone line and a computer. Um, but uh, Bruce, as you listen in with regards to this, I mean, you have Steve Grand on the line. What would you like to see Steve Grand write a book about? Well, gosh, that's a that's a tall order. I I think just his philosophy of life, and maybe his his philosophy or approach to the future of humanity, and as as a guide, how does Steve Grand see us being able to survive as a species? Wow! Thank you, Bruce. The big question. That down. <laughs> if Bruce thinks it's a good idea, then it's a good idea. It's um, that that's quite possibly what I will write about. Um, one one of my uh, possible topics is a book called Machines Like Us, uh, which is a based on a talk I gave a long time ago about human beings as machines and what that implies for us as a species and how we think of ourselves and questions of morality and so on. Um, or I might write a book about. Um, existence and um, how the universe comes into being and you know how how, how systems self-organise. Uh, but I'm, I'm playing around with them. Oh, uh, something that did occur to me to say tonight while I'm on is uh, uh, that we really need to get our act together with AI, with artificial life. I, I just wrote the um, the article on artificial life for Britannica, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. And do you know that this is the first time we've had one? There wasn't an article on artificial life in Britannica until now. And they gave me a thousand words, which is not very much. And uh, AI got 12,000 words. Gosh. Since AI is a subset of artificial life, I think we really need to redress that balance. Does Britannica still matter, though? Um, It's still an important reference. Uh, tool, yes, because it's citable in a way that Wikipedia often isn't. Um, and Wikipedia obviously has got a decent article on artificial life. A lot of that is changing with regard to Wikipedia. It's, That's true, uh, yeah. Its acceptability is rapidly improving. But it's um, Either way, I think an article on A-Life really ought to be longer than an article on AI, since the one is a subset of the other. Well, that's one way to look at it. Um, but in terms of Wikipedia versus uh, Britannica, there really is a big um, rivalry between the two. Um, I admit to being a little bit biased because I do edit some of Wikipedia myself. But in general, the quality of the articles are really very, very good. There's occasionally some problems with details, and you do need to check what's printed there. Um, but I think that the 
Wikipedia is rapidly becoming the encyclopedia of choice. Oh, I agree. I, I wouldn't wouldn't dispute that. I mean, it's the first place I go to look anything up. I'm sure that's the truth truth for most people in the world. There's three million articles in it, and you know some of them are drivel, but there's an awful lot of good material there. Well, I mean, I've I've had the fellow who edited the um, Artificial Life Enter on Wikipedia on. In fact, it's probably the most downloaded podcast out there because I actually attached it to the Wikipedia Artificial Life article. But I mean, certainly. Uh, he considered the topic as something that was so uh, ballooning and almost quite overwhelming that I think he's actually put down uh, the active um, writing of the artificial life topic. Steve, in five sentences, can you summarize your uh, your entry with regards to artificial life? Oh, um, too much evolution. That's the, <laughs> that, was, that was my conclusion. Uh, there's very little you can say in a thousand words. So I tried to explain that uh, the, the whole point is Chris Langton's original plan. Uh, we don't understand what's necessary and what's just a mess in biology. So A-Life is a way of abstracting it out and, and working out what the, the principles of biology are. And then I talked a bit about some of the techniques they use, like uh, genetic algorithms and so on. And then so in terms of the usual suspects, what names were attached to artificial life? Oh, I only named one person. That was Chris. Right. Uh, there wasn't there wasn't space for citations. So I, I didn't want to to make it too detailed in any case because there were philosophical questions about artificial life that that you need to get across to the public. Yes, I think that was the problem with the the Wikipedia entry on artificial life was it became too technical and then avoided philosophy and then shot back the other way and then it became a list of names and now it's really just a skeleton. I mean, it's not, there's no real information there um, aside from a series of links. Let me the, most, the most you can hope to do in a, in a thousand word encyclopedia article is, is pique people's interest and, and get them to look further. Um, so you need to stick to the generalities, I think. To a short article, Wikipedia is different because it can have as long an article as you like. Um, somehow things are easier to read than they're on screen. Uh, but, uh, but I wanted to talk a bit about the difference between hard and soft day life, and you know, are, are these things really alive or not, and um, other sort of ontological questions. Yes, I put back to the Dawkins editors on Wikipedia that um, actually my my facts were wrong. I thought his um, reference associated with artificial life had been expunged, but using various uh, tracking techniques, I couldn't actually find the original uh, Dawkins article. I think it had been connected to the A-Life article as these things occur. But, I mean, in terms of the... Chris Langton, obviously, but in terms of Tom Ray, uh, Jeffrey Ventrella was an interesting case because his article was expunged from Wikipedia on three separate occasions. I was called in to provide a reference... Uh, you've maintained a relatively small article on, on Wikipedia, Steve, but it doesn't, I mean, you need to go to the Creatures Wiki to get any real information. In terms of, uh, you know, folks maintaining the artificial life entry on Wikipedia, what do you think should be there? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, well, it, it maybe needs uh, pointing to lots of other articles, we can do with articles on genetic algorithms and, and L systems and some of the basic techniques that the common to their life, and and some history of the of the folk involved. I mean, in particular that first generation of pioneers. Um, 
I haven't looked at the A Life article for a long time to tell the truth. Um, but his, historically speaking, it's not a, that's not an easy way to track the subject because nothing much has changed um, over the last decade. Ooh, now those are contentious topics for potentially <laughs> a future bias alive that will get you back on, Steve, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I, I'll say this then: there's too much evolution in a life. We'll, we'll, we'll have a bio to live on that sometime. So we have the benefit of having uh, Luke Johnson, aka Tolkus, on from Australia. He's a roboticist who we had on the last bios live. And Steve, I, I think he has a, a couple of robotics a life related questions for you. Hello, Tolkus. Hey, how you going, Tom? I, you got to mention I'm a hobby. It sounds uh, a bit um, Yeah, no, I've, I had a look at um, Steve's work. I'm going to order his book, The Growing Up With AI, quite soon. Um, yeah, I'm actually interested in um, doing basically very similar to what he does, you know, I experiment with um, mixing AI and artificial life um, together with, with robots and, and, and the human interactive robots. So um, I've, I've probably got too many questions to ask. I've actually gone back to what you were talking about before with the chemical simulations and the brain emotion. I think um, that the chemical simulations could be used as a keeping uh, as a reference, like a litmus test, so that you could then test all the other processes that that are what are included in, in evolution of, of life. Sorry, I'm not sure I followed that. You're, you're suggesting that, that can you can you say that again? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, rather like uh, you were talking before about the focus being on the chemical simulations as being the major part of the Evo grid, and and talking about there being so many other processes that are crucial to to evolution and self-assembly and brand emotion. All these things um, could be. You could basically we've got a lot of data on chemical simulations and a lot of chemicals and all the biology. So we could use all that data as a, a reference so that when, when you run a simulation, you get to a point where you say, well, this works with our chemical simulation. Okay, we're not running a chemical simulation in this simulation, but we have the same result. That's basically the point I'm trying to make. Right, yes. The, 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 definitely the whole point is trying to, to get the result with the minimal uh, input. Um, it's, it's difficult because uh, since we don't know all of the processes of evolution and cell formation and morphogenesis and so on, and since we don't know all of the processes of chemistry either, there's going to be a, um, a, a hunting problem where, where you don't know whether your model is wrong or the data you're testing the model against is wrong. Um, it's going to be very suck it in the sea, I think. But uh, but this is what the process of artificial life is. It's, it's you know it's synthetic science. The whole point is not to do analysis, but to do synthesis and try these things out and see if they work and uh, learn from from that that process. Um, and I really hope it works out for the Evo grid too. So if I can ask a, a robotics a life question, what can the artificial life community learn from the robotics community, Steve? There's, there's a series of conferences. I don't know whether it's still going. SAB. Is, is SAB still going? Do you know, Tom? The, the simulation of adaptive behavior? Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't been to one for some years, but, but that conference circuit has been going for 
as long as A-Life and um, ECAL, the European Conference on Artificial Life, and it's kind of halfway between robotics and, and A-Life. Um, the people in SAB tend to build um, insect robots, and so they're interested in real biology. They're interested in how do um, how does catagliphics of desert ants uh, navigate that kind of uh, question? How how do real animals do real solve real problems? And they use robotics to do that. So there already is a, a kind of sub community of somewhere between robotics and a life where where they build a lot of insect and, and invertebrate robots. And it's quite a healthy community. In, in many ways, it's a more healthy community than than the pure A-Life community is. And is it a hobbyist community as well, or is it purely academic? Um, well, uh, it's largely academic. Um, and there, there, um, what's the name of the guy who does insect robots that he sells? Uh, Mark something? Mark Tilden. Mark Tilden, that's it, yeah. So, so there's the, the, um, his, his little robots kind of tap into the, the hobbyist community in the same vein. But, um, but the SAB conference, conferences are quite high-level um, academic papers and um, heavy-duty stuff. So there's not much adding, adding something here just for your curiosity, Steve, my day job or one of my day jobs is doing robot, high-fidelity physics-based robot rover simulation for NASA. And, you know, we I, I was developing that uh, shortly after we did Biota 2 and Biota 3, and it, it blossomed into 10 years of work that Peter Newman and Ryan and a bunch of us have been doing. And what's interesting is we're currently in a proposal phase for a new bunch of work for NASA next year on connecting a real a real field test rovers, uh, planetary rovers, in a common uh, service-oriented architecture into a 3D simulator, you know, our 3D simulator. And it, it, what's interesting for me is, is, as you're describing it, is I, I, in a sense, I'm now living at the two ends of the spectrum. I'm living in robot simulation, and I'm living in chemical simulation, at least intellectually now, and maybe they can be brought together. <laughs> I, I never thought you would leave the virtual world, Bruce, and come into reality. <laughs> Welcome uh, to no, reality. No fear, no fear of that. <laughs> it's just the rest of us that feel like we live in a virtual world. But moving from moving from uh, my discussion with Tolkis last, uh, Biota Live, I mean, Tolkis and I were kind of brainstorming the possibilities, and particularly... You've touched on the uh, kind of hobbyist robotics, small companies selling components into the robotics community, Steve, and, and Tolkis was also mentioning that last Biota Live. Do you think there's a model for the artificial life community where we, you know, form small companies and create some form of product that, uh, you know, robotics hobbyists could use? You mean hardware products? Possibly. Possibly software, um, possibly hardware. Yeah, it's, uh, the, 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 the hobby robotics business is a very, very tough business. Not many people survive long in it, um, and they don't make a great deal of money if they do. So it's not, a, not an easy world to, to make a living in. Uh, but then that's partly because most of the companies that end up doing, uh, serving the hobby robotics market um, are engineers, and so they come from the perspective of servos and motors and uh, control boards and you know even sensors are a bit 
uh, of their normal path. Uh, and there aren't many people who, who are involved in the robotics world uh, who come at it from the AI perspective, or and certainly not the artificial life perspective. So there's, there's certainly um, scope, I would have thought, the market there for um, artificial creatures as opposed to um, you know, standard platform three-wheel robots. Um, and there's, there are people out there who would avidly buy such things if you can make them cheap enough. And in terms of it being a kind of after-hours project, not the day job, I mean, do you think there's a model that the artificial life community could move to in terms of either selling small bits of hardware or software for the robotics community? Is that more a possibility? Uh, you mean uh, components for, for the robotics community as opposed to fully-fledged robots? Well, yes, exactly. Could be. If you can use them, what's lacking, I think, in, in that interface between robot hobbyists, the general public, and, and robot builders uh, is ingenuity. Um, there's not a great deal of ingenuity involved, not a lot of lateral thinking. Uh, it all tends to be quite straightforward engineering. Uh, the sensors tend to be dumb and uninteresting sensors. And anyone who works in artificial life soon discovers how ingenious biology is and how you know how different a retina is from a camera, how different uh, a touch uh, touch sensor in a living thing is from a whisker sensor on a robot, and um, and how much computation goes into even these quite basic elements of robotics. So, so I'm sure there's scope for adding the ingenuity, you know, value added stuff where where the insights we have in artificial life could turn dull electronics into more interesting modules. The, the symbiosis project that, that I've stopped doing and I'll send you the source code for, um, when I originally started doing it in 1979, it was in software. And then I realized that um, computers weren't smart enough, fast enough. And um, so in the middle, well, just after Creatures, I guess, I started doing the same thing in hardware. Um, I got some funding to build physical cells that you could plug together in arbitrary combinations and they were sensors and actuators and computational devices and um, there's definitely scope for someone to build a kind of robotic toolkit like that where, where there's an elegance in the architecture that means you can produce a, a huge variety of robots from um, a, a relatively small Lego set of, of building blocks. Yes, I thought initially you were really describing a kind of return to us writing books for the robotics community, but I think this is a very interesting idea, and particularly Tolkien says, I, I plan on moving Steve's symbiosis open source relatively soon. I mean, as you listen in, does that sound like something that could benefit the robotics community, the hobbyist robotics community in particular? Definitely, definitely. Um, there's, there's a bit of research, I think it's Robert Poole's lab in the States, so they're trying to work on like having a black box where you can just attach sensors and motors and use um, uh, basically have an adaptive um, design so that you can experiment and prototype with as many different uh, forms as you want. And that's something that if, if hobbyists could have, that, that and as you say, there's not a lot of, of hobbyists that have got the AI perspective. So if you can take out a lot of that from the equation it would enable a lot cooler robots being coming out of the hobby sector and, and, and they would buy that as a, as a product, like a chip or a board. But I think also um, 
even just software modules. If you had a, a software module that you could then attach, you know, not necessarily a whole package that includes the board and the the, the software. Just the software alone could be a product. And also, I think um, Xbox Live could be a good market where you make a game. There's millions of people out there that'll pay ten dollars for an, an artificial life game and play it on their at home in their lounge room. Is that something you thought about, Steve? Uh, what writing an Xbox game? Yes. Uh, well, um, certainly the the game I started writing that I've shelved while I wrote a book um, is based on XNA for its 3D code, and so that can port to Xbox pretty easily. Although um, the Xbox market and the PC market are very different kinds of people think about things in different ways, and uh, so probably a game that an A Life game that worked well on Xbox would be quite different from a game that would work well on PC. I think. It has to be a bit more action-oriented. I think a lot of... I, I play live myself, and I think uh, across live, you get a very big cross-section. Look, unfortunately, there's a lot of young kids that act like idiots in this virtual world, but um, there's people from all demographics, and I think parents want something that they can say is more educational for their kids. So that's something that, you know, could be a selling point. Yeah, well, that's true. The educational possibilities for artificial life projects are huge because the whole point of A-Life is that it's abstract biology, so it's a great way of of teaching people the fundamentals of biological systems in a nice, entertaining and friendly way because it's so much less messy than, than real pets, for example. Now, there's a lot of scope. I think it, to some extent we don't have the, the technology or the philosophy yet. We haven't actually done our own science well enough uh, to do the really interesting things commercially, but there is a market out there. I mean, my creatures game, I think in total, sold two million copies. Uh, I wish I'd got the money for it, but um, you know, it, it demonstrated that there is a, a huge market out there for people who are interested in what life is, and that's what we're all interested in. You know, what is life? What does it mean? Um, and uh, and also, when I was writing creatures all those millions of years ago. I, it would have taken a fifth of the time to write if it weren't for marketing departments because I spent most of my time fighting about the design because everyone kept telling me that people aren't interested in science and I should hide all the science crap. And uh, and I think the creatures community proved them completely wrong, that there are certainly two million people out there who are very interested in science and the 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 skill that was put into trying to understand the creature's genome and um, do experiments on, on these little norms uh, was just mind-blowing. Uh, kids were doing really quite advanced science, and uh, it was quite impressive. So, so there's a market out there. There's a thirst for it. Everyone wants to know what life is. Everyone wants to understand what consciousness is. Uh, everyone gets easily attached to living things, and... Uh, and somebody somewhere can make some money out of it, I'm sure. It just won't be me, I bet. Certainly watching uh, Will Wright's discussion of Spore, I think there's certainly he, he was, seems to be similarly perturbed by not only a marketing but also a legal department associated with what Spore ended up being. But interestingly, <laughs> Genova Chen's interpretation of Jeffrey Rentrella's work in Flow proved that uh, you can actually have artificial life or artificial life-like um, simulations on consoles. I mean, it was a success on the PlayStation 3, although not on uh, Xbox necessarily. Steve, it has been absolutely wonderful having you on Bio to Live, and I mean, I think 
we've introduced the format to you. Do you think you would be interested in participating in potential future biolives? Oh, sure. You've sucked me in there, Tom. I've, I've, I've stayed away from it because my life has been complicated and uh, I have, just haven't had the brain power to think about it. But you're interesting, interesting bunch of guys. And, uh, yeah, I'll be back. And we, we do get a random smattering on, although Bruce is a, is a regular and William is a regular in the chat, and as is Tolkis. We do get an interesting group on, so you're never really sure who might actually be calling in on a Friday night. <laughs> Well, I'll be back. I'll, I'll try and say something provocative to wind everybody up. Wonderful. Well, artificial life hasn't done anything in the past decade, I think, is probably <laughs> going to be the topic that you're on next time on Bios Live. Bruce, sure thing. <laughs> Bruce, you're going to be travelling in the, in the near future. Do you have any final questions for Steve? Are you, are you settled down in, in uh, Flagstaff, Steve? Um, I'm, I'm settled for the next year, definitely. Uh, I shall be around. This is a beautiful place. I love Flagstaff. It's really nice. So, yeah, I'll be here for a year. Now, I'm not all that far from you, I guess, now. A couple of days' drive. Maybe we'll meet oh, up. It'd be lovely to see you. And uh, Reed Reiner at Northern Arizona University is um, in Flagstaff. He's one of the early founders of the Contact Consortium and an anthropologist, oh. in a virtual world anthropologist. Oh sure, I'll look him up. Can you say his name again? Uh, Reed Reiner. I'll I'll, uh, I'll send you a, um, a contact. Oh great, thank you. And perhaps you both could meet in Las Vegas sometime <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> it's in the middle. Well, it's not really in the middle for Bruce, but it is if he gets on a jet plane. So, <laughs> well, I'd like to thank all the the folks for participating this evening. The chat has been on fire. We've had collaborative projects discussed and sealed and emails sent and a wide variety of things going on in the chat this evening in parallel to our discussions. So I, once again, Steve, I mean, thank you for participating and certainly you, you bring a large posse in terms of those that are interested in your work. So it's wonderful to have you on. You're welcome, Tom. And our topic on uh, next Bios Alive, September the 4th, post-singular and post-apocalyptic, something slightly different than this evening's discussion, but uh, no doubt we'll have an interesting group of callers. Perhaps Steve might call back and uh, put forward the thought that artificial life hasn't done anything in the past 10 years. That would certainly get the uh, conversation post-apocalyptic relatively quickly, I would presume. But anyway, thank you all very much for listening in. Good night. Good night. Good night.